0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary, with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This episode is for the proper four readings, which would be usually only seen in a year where Easter falls fairly early. As these proper readings shift based on the date of Easter, and then they continue to go all the way up through Really, the end of the church year. The last Sunday of the church year is proper 29. So that's how these things are kind of marked. Our Old Testament text is Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 to 21 and verse 26 to 28. The epistle from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 28. And then the gospel text is going to be from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 29, uh, the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So we begin in Deuteronomy, chapter 11. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. We'll pause there as we're going to have a, a break in our text and then we'll resume with verse 26 in a moment. But let's look at this first paragraph first. It should be observed here that this is the forgotten parallel of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 starts with what is called the the great Shema, uh, the great, uh, basically, hearing. The idea that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And then it gets into these very same ideas that Moses says here that you should teach this faith to your children, and you should do it at all times without leaving anything out, and then the frontlets and the doorposts and all those things are mentioned there too. I don't know why our focus in the Church has become so much on Deuteronomy 6 and not so much on Deuteronomy 11. I wonder if many people even recognize that Deuteronomy 11 is there, that it is the same essentially. Anyway, uh, looking at what Moses is actually saying here, to be specific, lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall therefore lay up these words. Therefore, the text before this, those verses leading up to it, were about the promise of how God would provide for them in the promised land, or also the the punishment of what would happen if they didn't, if they did not obey his voice. Specifically in those verses, it's a reference to the Lord opening the heavens and sending rain, or closing the heavens and withholding rain, both of which happen in Israel's history. You can think of the three and a half years of drought in Elijah's day for example of that. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. The promise of God, the commandment of God. Cherish these things. So the promise that they would live long in the land, that God would give them the promised land. This land has been promised to their family for generations, going all the way back to a man named Abraham, Abraham born in, if I'm recalling correctly, 2166 BC, and he would be 75 years old, so 2091 BC, at the point where he has moved from Haran down to the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. It is what we know as Israel in the future to come. And God already at that point in Genesis 12 and then reiterated in other chapters as Abraham's life continues onward, given the promise that that land would be given to him, to his children, to his offspring after him, to their generations forever, meant as a permanent gift. We'll see that at the end of the text that we're reading today as well. So the promise, this land is for you. A land flowing with milk and honey, sometimes attached to that promise, which means it is a luxurious land by the standard that they had. Milk was not an easy thing to have. In order to have milk, you had to have the livestock that could produce it. You'd have to have your cows. And even at that, you couldn't preserve milk. They didn't have refrigeration. The way we do today, you can stick your milk in the fridge, you can go to the store and buy it from a giant fridge. Different world. So as we might take milk for granted today, it was very valued by them. And then also honey, which was, I mean, that was their dessert. That was the sweetness of of the world at the time. Good things. Obey God. You get to live in this land. He will be your king. He will be his people. He will provide for you forever. Don't obey God. He'll remove you from this land. That's the general picture here that's going to flow all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. So, lay up these words in your heart and in your soul. As Christians today, it's not difficult to move this text forward in the light of Christ. As we know from the road to Emmaus that Jesus showed how all of the Old Testament points to him. What promised land do we have that is a permanent gift to us? What promises of Christ do we have? Also, what warnings of Christ do we have? And so the promises of the Lord are that of forgiveness of sins, of a resurrection of the dead, of salvation, of a paradise that he is preparing for us even now where we will join him in the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom which knows no end, all of these great things. But we also know of hell that has been created for the purpose of sending the devil and his angels there. And unfortunately, those who rebel against the Lord, those who choose uh, to live differently, who choose to not walk according to the Lord's ways, and that is the place they will also go. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You know, the twofold nature of this in your heart. The words for heart and mind in Hebrew, sometimes interchangeable, soul. I like that word. It's one that I still, I contest that we just don't even know what it means. We know what our body is. We even know what our heart is, although not necessarily this context. But what is our soul? What is your soul? I don't think the scriptures ever define it for us. We're simply told that we are both. We are body and soul. The Lord has made both. They are both good. They are both raised from death to life everlasting. We have a soul. We are a body and a soul. We are not a soul that inhabits a body. That's false theology. So somehow this soul is the very depths of yourself. Lay up these words, or as Mary in the New Testament treasured these things in her heart, so do we. The promises of the Lord, the word of the Lord, is to be cherished by us, to be held so dearly. Bind them as a sign on your hand, frontlets between your eyes. These two things are a picture of what the Pharisees were doing at the time of Jesus. And we get the impression from that point that it's wrong, but that's not the case. What was wrong was that they were trying to be seen. This isn't the only example like this, there's also in the book of Numbers a conversation about how the, basically the tunic, if you can imagine almost like a poncho-like garment that was just one big piece of fabric, had a hole cut in the center of it so that you could put your head in it, right, and it would drape then over to the rest of your body. At the corners, at the four corners of that garment, you were to have tassels. And Numbers specifies that those tassels are a reminder of God's Word. And so as you're walking through the market in town, you see that guy over there, he's got tassels. You see that guy over there, he's got tassels. Everybody's got tassels. and These tassels are to remind you of the Word of God. It's a daily reminder. And so it is with these things. We're tempted to think that these things weren't normal, that what the Pharisees were doing at their time was prideful by simply doing it. That's not the case. We'll come back to that in a second. You were, as a Israelite, as a Jewish man, to do these things, to put the Word of God on your forehead and on your hand. Now, the hand in the ancient world is everything from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. So what we consider the hand and the forearm, that was what they considered the hand. So when it says, bind them on your hand, think of a bracelet. What do you bind on your hand today? We bind a clock on our hand oftentimes, but you might have charms or other symbols on a bracelet as well. They bound the word of God, so imagine having a bracelet that has a small box on it, and inside that box you have a scroll, and written on the scroll are the words of the Lord. And the same thing goes for the head as well, that you are then to wear basically a headband that has a box, and in that box is contained the word of God. These boxes were called phylacteries. And this is what Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for in part when you get to Matthew 23. In his series of seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, notice this. The, the problem isn't that they have phylacteries. The problem isn't that they have fringes. Maybe we should say tassels there. The problem is that they're excessive. So if every man in town has a, a box that's, I don't even know what the normal size of a phylactery would be, but maybe a, a two-inch square box on his arm, the Pharisees are going around with four-inch square boxes on their arm. Now, don't quote me on the numbers there, but that's the, that's the picture. They're, they're doing things in excess to get people to look at them so people think, oh, how great that man must be. Look at his strong faith. Look at how much he loves the Word of God. That wasn't the point. The point of looking at your neighbor and seeing that box between his eyes was to remind you of God's Word which is what was inside the box. The point of seeing the tassels was to remind you of God's word, not to point to the man wearing the tassels. That's Deuteronomy 6. That's Deuteronomy 11. You shall wear God's word. Lay up these words on your hand, between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children. We'll come back to that initial note but first when where how talking of them when you are sitting in the house walking by the way when you lie down and when you rise so when you're at home when you're out and about when you're lying down that is when you're preparing to sleep and also when you get up in the morning moses didn't leave anything out and as often as I have shared that with people, I, I have had one person tell me that there there's one other, one other place that we could be, and that is free falling, like skydiving or you know just plummeting off of a cliff. At which point, if you and your child are plummeting together, I'm led to believe you probably would be sharing the word of God with them, uh, praying together, praying that the Lord would redeem you. He has redeemed you. Thanks be to God praying that the Lord would keep you in that moment. Anyway, basically, every opportunity, every moment of every day is an opportunity to teach our children about God, about his word, about his promises, about the hope that we have in him. This is not a task to be outsourced. American parents love outsourcing things, and maybe love isn't the right word. American parents believe everything is outsourced. We outsource the raising of our children to schools as well as the teaching of our children. We outsource the feeding of our kids, uh, even the diapering of our kids. We outsource uh, sports and other uh, musical instruments, all kinds of things. Parents get up in the morning they get their kids ready, they get them out the door, and they go off to work, they make the income that's needed, they come home, they're tired, they take their kid to a sporting event, they bring them home, they make sure their homework's done, they put them to bed. That is not the life that the Lord designed. That is the 21st century American life, and it does not fit the scriptures. We are not designed to outsource everything. Your pastor is not the expert on faith and thus the only one who can teach it to your kids. The Lord ordained fatherhood to pass on the faith. The Lord ordained motherhood to pass on the faith. No one is better situated to share the word of God with your son or with your daughter than you are. This is God's design, and as long as we continue to try to forsake God's design, it's going to backfire. The last several generations in the church has relied on Sunday school confirmation youth group to be what passes on the faith to our kids. Let's take a pause, take a big picture look at everything. How is that working out for us? What is it that is universally bemoaned by every congregation in Lutheranism? And it's not just Lutheran churches. It's outside of Lutheran churches, too, because other church bodies have been functioning the same way. When we try to do something apart from the way God designed it to be done, if we were talking in other ways, we would say that's sin. I'm not saying you can't have a youth group, or you can't have a Sunday school, or you can't have confirmation classes, but all of those things are to be supplements. The primary task is to be done by dad at home, and as you're out and about. If that's not happening, just a little brief glimpse from pastor or a volunteer at church has very little opportunity. truly impact the heart and soul of your child because your heart and soul, their heart and soul, are being bombarded by the world and the world's message all the time. So you bombard your child's heart and soul with the Word of God all the time. That's where things happen. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The gates is a city reference, so we have the home and the city. When you enter your home, you would see the word of God. When you leave your home, you would see the word of God. When you come into the town, you would see the word of God. When you leave your town, you would see the word of God. Have you caught the pattern yet? We are to make the word of God visible to ourselves at all times. A present daily reminder. I encourage people to have a centerpiece on their kitchen table wherever they spend that time that will remind them of Christ. Maybe it's just as simple as keeping your Bible there or keeping a Bible there. Maybe it's a crucifix. Maybe it's a a standing cross. Maybe it's the Advent wreath or a Lenten cross or whatever it might be that's going to remind you at that time of the day To open God's word together as a family. Whether that's just you as a a single uh, adult, or if it's a husband, wife, empty nester, or if it's husband, wife, and kids, or if it's a single parent, whoever. The Lord's word is the center of our life. Because Christ is the center of our life, and the Lord's word is about Christ. It is to point us to him. So have these reminders. Don't do them to be seen by others. We'll come back to that with the Sermon on the Mount. The goal is that others would see Christ. So it's okay to wear a crucifix. But don't wear a crucifix that draws attention to you. Wear a crucifix that draws attention to Jesus. That's the kind of idea here. Write them on your doorposts and your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land Yahweh swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. Based on that last sentence, how long did God desire the Israelites to live in the promised land? How long did God want them to dwell there? He wanted them to live there forever as long as the heavens are above the earth until Christ's second coming, at the very least here, right? But they don't, because they don't obey God's word. And so their days in the land are not multiplied, at least not for a long, long time. Uh, They're multiplied. I mean, even the wickedness of the Israelites in the northern kingdom endures for centuries, because they enter... uh, Again, we go back, the promise was made in 2091 to Abraham... And now, we're at 1406. We're about to see the death of Moses here in the book of Deuteronomy. So, 600, almost 700 years have gone by already. They're going to enter the promised land in 1406, and they're going to live there until 722 B.C. It's almost 700 years. And the southern kingdom of Judah, which was... A little more faithful but grew worse than Israel the northern kingdom they get to live there until 587 BC so that's a little over 800 years they had multiplied years in the land but not as long as the heavens are above the earth because they rejected the Lord they did not keep his commandments they did not lay up these words in their hearts and in their souls they did not teach them to their children They forgot them, and they lived however they pleased. All right, the verses skipped, verses 22 to 25, are going to be, if you do the commandments of God, here's what he's going to do for you. He will drive out the nations, even nations that are greater than you are. He will give you a great and vast territory. No one will be able to stand against you, and all the people will fear you. Those are the gifts that God is promising to them. What more could a nation ask for? All of your enemies defeated? A vast kingdom? No enemy can stand against you. They're not not even able to stand against you for their fear of you. A great kingdom, easily defended. This sounds wonderful, but they don't do it. Anyway, that's what's skipped in the jump between. Now we go to verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. There's nothing really all that new with this final paragraph that we haven't talked about in the episode already, setting before you today a blessing and a curse. I guess what we could say is interesting about that is chapter 27 and 28, that range of the book of Deuteronomy very specifically lays out the blessings and the curses. Blessing, if you obey the commands that you get to live long in the land. Curse, if you don't, God will punish you, he'll remove you from the land. That's the simple explanation of these things but again, you can read more in those other chapters if you would like to. If they turn aside from God, and they follow other gods that they have not known, you can't know a god that doesn't exist. So in part, this is a reference to the idea that they would worship as they come into the promised land, they would learn of new gods, and they would seek to follow them instead of Yahweh, That's fair, but I would again attest you can't know a god that doesn't exist. They would chase after other gods, so they chase after the gods of the Canaanites. Baal, Asherah, they chase after the gods of the Moabites or the Ammonites, and so you get, like, Kamash. And Molech, to whom they would offer their children in sacrifice and worship. Even the Israelites will eventually do that. Dark things, terrible things. And the Lord drives them out of the land because of it. If you turn aside from the way I'm commanding you today, there's not a lot of time stamp going on in the book of Deuteronomy. It is a Think possible the entire book happens in one day. It's 34 chapters long, concluding with the death of Moses. So maybe a little bit of chapter one and a little bit of chapter four, 34 being separate days perhaps. But the idea is it's basically one long speech of Moses. There's a little interaction in the later chapters back and forth between God and Moses. Joshua is brought into that conversation. Most of this. Moses speaks to the elders of the people, he summons the people, he shares with them, too. The whole book seems to be in mind with what we're talking about with this last paragraph. The things that God has given his people as his law for them to follow, because they are a holy nation set apart by God to be different than all the nations that are around them. And this ultimately becomes a connection point for us to the gospel reading from the Sermon on the Mount, because that's our calling too. To be different, set apart from those who live around us, that they may see the good things of God in us. The epistle reading for the weekend is from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 28, and Romans is a letter where Paul seeks to describe the righteousness of God, and that it is not a thing of our own doing, but rather God takes his righteousness, his perfection, and gives it to us. And that's what we're going to see in today's text very clearly spelled out for us, including perhaps the most simple proclamation of how we are saved right at the end of the text. But for now, let's read verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Righteousness, righteous, right. And just boiling it down, right? The idea that we would be right. And in English, I think in 21st century America, we think of right and wrong. That you either have the right answer to a question or the wrong answer to a question. Although I don't know that 21st century America even accepts that idea anymore. 20th century America did. But even that doesn't really get at what right is in this sense, righteous. The righteous one is the one who does the will of God, and we'll see that phrase in the the gospel reading from Jesus. To be right is to be holy, it is to be perfect, it is to be good, to be righteous. Righteous. And as we'll see in verse 23, none of us are. So the focus on the righteousness of God, that he is perfect, he is good, he is holy, he has never sinned, he has never had a fault in him. That righteousness of his, his perfection has been manifested, that it's been made known, revealed to us. How? Not by the law. That is, not by our doing. You and I are not righteous. We cannot be righteous by our works. Try as you may. And I'm not saying you shouldn't try. We should seek to follow God's word and to follow his laws. But you're not saved by it. Never have been, never will be. That's a point Paul will make in the book of Galatians, if I remember correctly. The idea that we ended up making the law into something that God had not designed it to be in the first place. It was never a salvation textbook. It was simply God's will for his people. Live this way. This is good. Do this. This is what is right. So the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. They talk about the righteousness of God. They point us to the righteousness of God. But how that righteousness comes is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe are you perfect no am i perfect no i i have sinned in thought word and deed this day and yesterday and the day before that and if the lord allows tomorrow i will do tomorrow as well unfortunately because i am a sinner I have a sinful nature that seeks to tear me away from Christ and his promises. Thanks be to God that he continues to work in me and on me, and even through me, uh, for the good of others, too. But God's righteousness, his perfection, is given as a gift in Christ, through faith, to all who believe. So those three prepositional clauses, through faith, How do we receive righteousness? How do we become righteous? Through faith. Not through works, not through actions, but by faith. This is why you'll often hear Lutherans describe faith as a gift God gives. The Spirit creates it in us. But then they'll say something like, uh, the gifts of God are received by faith. So when you hear the word, the word works on you. The word works in you because God is, well, He's working through that, and your faith receives it. The sacrament, as you come to receive Christ's body and blood in the supper, you're receiving that gift by faith. I've heard it described as the baseball glove that you wear, and so you're wearing the glove, and the ball comes and and, and lands in your hand. I don't know if that's a helpful image, or not. I. I think I've used the necklace picture before, uh, that we cannot earn the gift, but God comes and he puts it on us. As a husband would give a necklace to his wife and he simply wants to cherish her and shower his love on her with this gift, she can reject it, but she cannot earn it. So it is with with this righteousness of God. We don't earn it. It's a gift. It's given. We can reject it and choose to continue to live in our sin and rebellion against the Lord. But it's a gift. So that righteousness comes through faith. So faith is like the reception point in Christ, in Jesus Christ. That's the how. Jesus makes it ours this is what he has done by his death and his resurrection. This is the work he has done for us on the cross and with the empty tomb, that he defeated sin and the devil on Good Friday. He defeated death on Easter morning. He defeated all of them for you. The devil thought Good Friday was a good day for him, the devil, and it wasn't. He cherished that day. He reveled in that day because he was killing God. Like a dream come true, a twisted dream come true. But that very day that he thought would be great ended up being his undoing because all of his power against God's people, his power against you, was in your sin. That he would take your sin and he would accuse you before God. That he would take your sin, he would hold it over your head and shower you in that guilt. Seeking to cause you to drown in despair. And to think, how could God ever love me after I did that? How could God possibly forgive me this time? Satan revels in that, but it's gone. His power has been broken because on the cross, as Christ poured out his blood, your sin was taken away. Gone, done, forgiven in Christ. He took it for you in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is sometimes talked about in in our circles as the great exchange. God takes our sin and we get his righteousness. On paper, that actually sounds like a terrible trade, at least a terrible trade from God, but a great one for us. But in truth, the Lord receives us in that trade. He's redeemed us. By the blood of his Son, he has won us back, purchased us for himself. Those he created, those he loved, they are his again. His treasured possession as he calls us a few times in the Old Testament. Another way that we'll phrase this is Christ's imputed righteousness. I love the chalkboard illustration of this. Imagine a chalkboard or whiteboard, for that matter, and if you have one, do it. Fill it with a list of sins that you have ever committed, or even recently committed, If you're struggling, go ahead and just put up other generic sins that you can think of. Fill the board. Christ's death on the cross is sometimes viewed as an eraser that erases your board. But the trouble with that picture is that if your board is merely erased, what's going to happen next? I'm just going to fill my board up again. So the real picture of this is that instead... As Christ erases the board, he doesn't just erase it. He then fills it up with himself. And so I like to draw a chi row, which are the first two letters in Greek of the word Christ. It's that symbol, if you've seen it before, that looks like an X with a giant P running through the middle of it. The letter P is actually a row in Greek, and it makes the R sound, and the X makes more of a a hard CH sound like in Christian, Christ. So a couple of illustrations that are fairly common in our circles today. Helpful for understanding this, the righteousness of God received through faith comes how it's been won for you by Jesus in Christ. And then we get our third phrase at the end of the sentence, for all who believe. Just as in Acts chapter 2, Peter's Pentecost sermon, he says that this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Who is this for? Who receives the righteousness of God in Christ through faith? Those who believe, those who have faith. Faith is trust, by the way, to trust in the promise. Believe, those who look to Christ as Savior, who look to him as Lord, who believe in his word, who trust in his promise. This this is for you. And then the the passage shifts, There is no distinction. So we just had a distinction at the start of verse 22. There is a distinction. The the righteousness of God is for those who believe. It is not for those who disbelieve, who reject him. However, where Paul goes next is, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In this world, every single man on this planet, no matter if he's a hundred years old or a baby still in the womb, is a sinner. We have all rejected God. We have all rebelled against him. Even one sin is enough to condemn me to hell. All of us fall short of the perfection God expects and demands from us. Think of the garden. If you eat of the tree that God told you not to, you will surely die. One sin one rejection. That's all it takes. And we're no longer holy. We're no longer capable of standing in the presence of God on our own. This is what Christ did. This is why the temple curtain is torn in two when Christ dies on the cross, because his perfection is now in us, over us, through us. We are clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Anyway, so there is no distinction in this world in that regard. We're all sinners. And so, verse 24, then, we are justified by his grace as a gift. And this is that moment of Jesus Christ on the cross, taking away our sins through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus buying us back by his almost precious blood. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood, uh, propitiation, nice big word, it shows up a couple of times in Scripture. Essentially, at its simplest, this word means to make something acceptable in one's eyes. So God sent forth Jesus to make us acceptable in His sight again, just as Adam and Eve were acceptable in His sight in the Garden of Eden before they fell. He looked at them and he called them very good. Jesus propitiates for us. That is, he makes us acceptable in the sight of God again by his blood. So what was the problem? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His blood takes that away. His blood takes away our sin. The sins of the world. Have been hung on him, nailed on him, to be received by faith, which we've already talked about that phrase uh, quite a bit with a previous verse in this text today. So there is a distinction, and yet there isn't a distinction. All are sinners. There's no distinction in that regard. Where the distinction falls is that not all believe. So not all have faith to receive the gifts that Christ has won. Jesus won salvation on the cross for every man, woman, and child ever to live in this creation. From Adam all the way to whoever the final baby born will be, and even the one still in the womb in that moment. The final baby conceived, whoever that will be. Jesus won salvation for all of them. But because not all believe, not all receive the gift. They reject it. They don't. Their chalkboard was wiped clean, but Christ didn't fill it with himself. They filled it with more of themselves instead because they pushed Christ away. So we're justified by his grace as a gift. That's pretty straightforward. We're made just. We're made right. We're made righteous as a gift. I would even usually define grace as a gift when we receive something we don't deserve, which is what any gift is. If it's, if it's deserved, it's not a gift anymore. Then it's a reward or it's payment. And this was to show God's righteousness So that he would die on the cross for us shows us God's righteousness. It manifests it to us apart from the law. To go back to verse 21. Because in his divine forbearance, it's an interesting word, so for previously, bear. Not like a, a growling, fuzzy beast. But to lift, to bear, to carry, to endure. God previously bore with sin in this world without simply condemning it all to hell, without simply destroying everything because it deserved it, we deserved it, but instead in his forbearance, he showed that patience. So that at that right time, the present time, he would be just and justifier. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God patiently endured sin in this world in order that he could justify us, in order that he could make us right again. And how? Again, by faith in Jesus. Jesus is the how. He makes it possible and then our faith receives that gift. All right. Lastly, verses 27 and 28 forming their own paragraph, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? To boast is to talk about how great you are. How great I am, right? The self. It is pride. What becomes of our pride? It is excluded. It's nothing. This is what we're going to see in the gospel reading quite clearly as Jesus will describe those false teachers who seek to tear apart the church from the inside. They seek on Judgment Day to come before the Lord and say, Look at me, look at what I've done. It is excluded. Your good works are not good enough. In fact, they are not good works if they are not done in Christ. The scriptures teach that too. So I have nothing I can boast about. So, by the law of works? No. No, I cannot come before God by the law of works. I cannot be righteous before God by the law of works, but by the law of faith. Mm -hmm. By that, by that any man can be justified. Law, rule, guide. I think that word law being connected to faith there might throw some people off. Pattern, uh, however you want to really describe that, it's not to say the Old Testament law as we normally phrase the phrase pattern of faith, by the the guide of faith, by the rule of faith, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And then again, nothing can say this more clearly than verse 28. We hold, so we, the apostolic teaching of the church, the teaching of the apostles, we hold that one is justified, made right with God by faith apart from works of the law. How are we saved? Is it by our doing or by God's? It's by God's doing. It is a gift, a free gift, and it has been won for you on the cross, and it is delivered to you in word and sacrament. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading, then, is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 29, it is the conclusion of Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as a review, then, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with gospel, begins with the Beatitudes, blessed are you, basically, and then he moves into a section on how we are called. We're called to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, the salt of the earth, And then, and this makes up the majority of everything in between that part of chapter 5 and now, Jesus basically calls us to live like this. That ends up being chapter 5, verse 16, which is the... I don't know that I want to say it's the most pivotal verse in the sermon, but the whole section of 5, 6, and 7 ends up being based on this line. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Live like this, that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That has been the purpose of loving your enemy instead of hating them like the world does. It's been the purpose of forgiving instead of divorcing. That's what the world does. It's all of these things. Let the world see your good works. Some of them may glorify the Father. That is, some of them may come to faith. Some of them may come to believe in Christ and the forgiveness that he gives. So, as we look then to this text, starting in verse 15 of chapter 7, we have a bit of a shift again as the text now moves towards the idea that we should look out for those Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus warns of false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. That is, they dress like Christians. They look like Christians. They enter the church like Christians, but they aren't. They're not there to build up the body of Christ. They're not there seeking the fellowship of believers in Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper, they are there seeking to kill and destroy, to tear you, maybe even your whole congregation, away from the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you can recall these things happening in your own congregation, of somebody who tried to derail the congregation's work of word and sacrament, to get you to focus on Uh, Something else entirely. Uh, A cultural pet peeve. A a certain building project or or whatever it is. Not with the intention of seeking the Lord and, and hearing his word. But for earthly glory. Or whatever it might be. They still come in our church today but you will recognize people by their fruits. And then the obvious, right? You're not gonna go to a thorn bush to find grapes. You're gonna go to a grapevine. You're not gonna look for figs where you would find thistles. You're gonna look at a fig tree. Trees bear fruit based on what kind of tree they are. So, if you want good fruit, you're gonna go to a good tree. Bad trees aren't gonna give you good fruit. In fact, if you're a farmer, you're going to cut the bad tree down in order to plant a new one. Verse 19 is the picture of judgment. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a reference to hell. John the Baptist preached this same thing back in chapter 3, verse 10, that the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, the the Christian is reading these verses and struggling and looking at it and saying, But I bear bad fruit. I sin. Take comfort then in Paul's words in Romans seven, that even Paul, the good that he wants to do, he doesn't do, but the evil he knows he shouldn't do, those things he keeps on doing. We're not perfect. Look at the fruit of these trees as repentance, as a humility that is willing to confess sin, receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, subjecting ourselves to the true good tree. As we are grafted in, and to use a little bit of Romans language and stick with these tree metaphors, we're grafted into the body of Christ. Verse 21, how do those men try to get into heaven? How do they try and get into paradise? By their works. Look at our good fruit. Look at what we did. And what does Jesus say? I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Like the false prophets of verse 15, but also the, the one who rejects the Lord. And who seeks to live this life by his own means. James chapter 2, verse 19, the epistle writes, even the demons believe. As we saw in our Romans text, faith salvation is a gift. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus through faith is given to us, not by our works. Man is justified, man is saved, man is redeemed in jesus by faith it's received so these they put their trust in their works not in the lord now verse 21 what is the will of the father that would be salt of the earth light of the world that we would love our neighbor not one of us will do that perfectly no one is righteous no not one romans again but we have faith whom we trust. Jesus will say something very similar to verse 23 as he teaches the parable of the ten virgins in chapter 25. You have the five virgins who have oil prepared for their lamps, and you have five that don't. Essentially, the picture is of a wedding party. A groom is going to go. He's going to prepare a home for his bride, and then he's going to come, and he's going to gather her and bring her to himself, and her her party, her group, will follow at the time. So he comes, but five of them were not prepared. They had gone off to market to get their oil, and so when the groom arrived, they weren't there. They missed the parade, the procession to the groom's home, and they show up late, and they knock at the door and and seek to come in, and he will not let them, because they lived their lives not in faith, not trusting in his promises, but in their, their own work of their own hands, in their own plans, by their own timing. There's a picture of, of trust, humility, following the Lord. Verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is a parable of his, a story that probably most Christians know, and it's one that makes perfect sense to us in English, the idea that if you build your house on a solid foundation, it will stand, But if you build it on a foundation that shifts and moves, it'll fall apart. Simply put, Jesus Christ is our firm foundation. We build ourselves, we build our lives, not on the shifting desires of the human heart, which are here today, gone tomorrow, and we focus on something else. But on Christ and on his word, as Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he does not change. And this is good, good news. Now, is there a law here? Yes, there is. Does Jesus actually expect you to love your neighbor, pray for those who persecute you, forgive other people? Yes, he absolutely expects us to do these things. But he also forgives. He has called us his own. He has called us by name, you are his so live the life he has laid before you but trust bear that fruit of repentance knowing that as you confess your sins as you lay them down before the Lord he has forgiven them he has redeemed you verses 28 29 wrap up the chapter the sermon's over but conclusion here When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Notice the crowds were astonished at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's passive. It happened to them. They were dumbfounded, blown away by the sermon that they heard. Why? Verse 29. His teaching had authority unlike their scribes. I want to point out that really the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the scribes, in theory, has the same authority, God himself. That Jesus is God, and so he speaks by his own authority, whereas the scribes, well, they don't speak by their authority, but they should rightly be entrusting themselves to the Lord's authority. Whether or not they actually were is debated, and Jesus will speak woes against the scribes in this book, because they weren't always. But basically, you can picture the teaching. You can picture a scribe teaching, right? He reads the scriptures, talks a little bit about it. But Jesus, Jesus as he preaches, it doesn't sound like he's quoting other people. He's just... He's speaking as a king. He's speaking as one who what he says goes. And again, it's because he's the Lord. He is God. There may have been good teachers among the scribes. Hopefully there were, just as hopefully you have a good teacher for a pastor. Good teacher not in the sense of Jesus, but a pastor who points you to Jesus. So Jesus teaching with authority amazed the crowd astonished them as he would continue to do in the years to come